The scripture reading for the message tonight is taken from the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Uh, Hear now the word of God. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Thus far the reading of God's holy an infallible word. You must excuse me because I'm a Presbyterian and we don't have a, a, a confessional or catechism sermons in my tradition. But I do want to read from the Belgic Confession at this point as it echoes uh, the uh, word of God as it is found in Hebrews. In fact, it quotes this passage. I will not read the whole chapter, article, the whole article, article 26, entitled The Intercession of Christ. But I begin in what is the um, fifth paragraph of that article. So then, sheer unbelief has led to the practice of dishonoring the saints instead of honoring them. That was something the saints never did nor asked for but which in keeping with their duty as appears from their writings, they consistently refused. We should not plead here that we are unworthy, for it is not a question of offering our prayers on the basis of our own dignity, but only on the basis of the excellence and dignity of Jesus Christ, whose righteousness is ours by faith. 
since the apostle, for good reason, wants us to get rid of this foolish fear, or rather this unbelief, he says to us that Jesus Christ was made like his brothers in all things, that he might be a high priest who is merciful and faithful to purify the sins of the people. For since he suffered being tempted, he is also able to help those who are tempted. And further, to encourage us more to approach him, he says, since we have a high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who has entered into heaven, we maintain our confession For we do not have a high priest who is unable to have compassion for our weaknesses, but one who was tempted in all things just as we are except for sin. Let us go then with confidence to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace in order to be helped. The same, same apostle says that we have liberty to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Let us go then in the assurance of faith. And I will stop the reading in the confession at that point. The message this morning was drawn from a text which sets our eyes on the future glory that will be revealed when Christ returns in his glory, when the consummation comes, when the suffering and difficulties of this world shall be no more and we'll see an incomparable glory. But, We live in the present. And in the present, we do have sufferings. We do have ill health. We have things that grieve and disturb us. And we have the daily struggle with temptation and sin. And so, in the words of the writer to the Hebrews... In the text tonight, we have a message that is focused not on the future glory, but on the present here and now. And it's focused on that, not to focus upon difficulty, but to focus on who our God has given to us to be a help in times of need. It is a focus on our Lord Jesus Christ in his office of priesthood, indeed of being the high priest. And as we look at him in through this text tonight, 
I want to look at three things. First of all, at the identity of our high priest. Secondly, at the character of our high priest. And finally, the call of our high priest that is placed upon us by this scripture. So first of all, we want to see the identity of our high priest. And his identity is illustrated in a number of ways. In the first place, I want to mention, suggest, that his identity is illustrated in his origin and in his destiny. Now there is language in this text that is rather strange. And I'll read again from the way uh, the ESV translates this. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. What in the world does the author of Hebrews mean by saying our high priest has passed through the heavens? Now the translation that the Belgic Confession uses, at least in its English translation, uses the word ascends or entered heaven. But I believe that is a poor translation. I think the ESV is more accurate to the original in saying that he passed through the heavens. And I want to suggest that it's not talking only about his going up, but also his coming down. In the Gospel of John, Jesus continually refers to himself as the one who the Father sent into the world. That we can find in John 3.13, in John 6.62, in John 6.38, and other like passages. He is the one who was sent from heaven. His human nature was created in the womb of the Virgin Mary through the power of the Holy Spirit. But his divine nature doesn't have an origin in this earth, but eternally with the Father in glory. And he says also in John chapter 6, in, another, in other language, I am the bread that came down from heaven. He has passed through the heavens in order to enter into our world, to take upon himself through the incarnation our nature, 
that he might be a high priest for us. But there is his origin as the one who is eternal, who is with and is God. But then the language also does speak of the return trip passing through the heavens in his ascension to sit at the right hand of the Father to sit there as the one who is the king and head of the church and the king and head of all creation as he rules there, but also as he is in that place to offer intercession for his people that he continually pleads for us in that heavenly place. So we see that our high priest has a pedigree, you might say, that is far surpassing any earthly priest that has ever held that office. He is eternal. He is from heaven. He has returned to heaven. And at the last day, he will pass through the heavens again as he returns in glory to take up his rule and his reign. So that's one way that he is identified as our high priest. But his identity is also illustrated in the name and nature that he has. The writer identifies him as Jesus, the Son of God. And we know from the Gospel of Matthew, as the angel Gabriel came to announce the Uh, birth of Jesus Christ in through Mary his espoused wife Gabriel gives him a direction from the God from God you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins That office of high priest is that he is the Savior and the Savior of sinners. That is who our high priest is. The priesthood of the Old Testament was not effective because those priests were themselves sinners and had an offering that could never take away sin because the blood of bulls and goats, we are told in this very epistle, can never take away sin. 
But not only do we see his office in his name, the Lord is salvation. That is what the name Jesus means. Or its Old Testament equivalent, Yeshua. The Lord is salvation. But in his nature, Jesus, the writer says, the Son of God. And again, we are brought to who he is. He is the one who is God. There is no other Son of God begotten by God than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who shares all the attributes of the Father and of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who is omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent. He is the one who is creator. For the Apostle John tells us that he created all things and nothing was created that was not created by him. He is God. And he is also high priest. But then um, we see we have duties. in response to his identity. The writer tells us, let us hold fast to our confession. Now, the United Reformed Churches are confessional churches. You hold to the three forms of unity, which I have a great respect for. I am committed to the Westminster Standards, which are also a Reformed confessional set of standards. But the language here does not mean let us just intellectually hold on to our doctrinal standards. We have to remember how things like the Belgic Confession or the Westminster Confession, for that matter, got the name Confession. It's not just that that's what you, a title you put on a organized set of doctrines. They, those documents were the real confession of those who wrote them. This was the confession of their faith. This, they said, it was what it meant to say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior, and these are the truths that that faith entails. 
So when the author of Hebrews says we are to hold fast to our confession, it doesn't merely mean intellectual assent to the documents. It means holding fast to our faith in the high priest who is presented to us in these words. It is grasping hold of his salvation through his sacrifice, which is what our faith is all about. We are not simply or are not to be deadly orthodox. Yes, we are to be orthodox, but that means a living, active faith in the one who is the subject of the doctrines that we love. I love Reformed confessions, but I love them because they are faithful to the Scripture and to the Lord Jesus Christ who stands behind the Scripture. When the writer of Hebrews wrote this epistle, the Belgic Confession did not yet exist. The Westminster Confession did not exist. The Second Helvetic Confession did not exist. And I can go on through the liturgy of Reformed Confessions. The Nicene Creed did not exist at that time. Nor even the Apostles' Creed, which is somewhat misnamed by calling it the Apostles' Creed. But there still was a confession to hold on to, to hold tight to. And that was the confession in who the person of Jesus Christ was and what his work accomplished. And to hold on to the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ as it was at that time found in what was called the Logia, um, the sayings of Jesus. The four Gospels were just being written at this time. But there is a confession to hold on to and that is our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that unites us to him as a person and as our high priest. Well, we want to turn from that to see the character of our high priest. And the first thing we see is that he is a sympathetic and empathetic high priest. Now, I have used two terms because at least 
as some people use the terms, they have a slightly different meaning. Um, you may have had someone t say, well, I can have sympathy for this person, but since I have never experienced what they are going through, I can't really empathize with them. Sympathy is often used as if it were mere uh, compassion for those in need, while empathy is the ability to place yourself in the shoes of that other person because of shared experience so you too know what that person is going through. Well, the Greek word that is found in Hebrews is really one that has more of the idea of empathy than sympathy although it is the word from which we get our English word sympathy. Sum passese. And the form of that word in Greek really means suffer with. But suffering with somebody carries the idea that the English word empathy carries. So I want us to see that yes, Jesus Christ has sympathy with us. He has compassion upon our need, but he also has empathy with us since he was tempted in all points like we are yet without sin. Now, at this point, the writer of the Hebrews uses grammar that English teachers would criticize you if you wrote a theme and used a double negative like this. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us. That seems to the English reader a complicated way of saying we do have a high priest that can sympathize with us. But in the Greek language, double negatives do not de-emphasize things. Double negatives serve to emphasize things. So the writer chooses to emphasize the fact 
that Jesus is our sympathetic and empathetic high priest. That He does have compassion for us because He knows the weakness and frailty of being human and knows it in being tempted in all points like we are. But here, for the modern unbeliever, is where some would say, now this is a deal breaker. Because the writer emphasizes the fact that Jesus was tempted like we are, yet without sin. How can that really be empathetic toward us who are sinners? Well, there's two things to say about that way of reacting to this teaching. The one is that this means that Jesus knows temptation at a deeper level than any of us know it. Because when you give in to temptation, you haven't experienced its full power that Jesus experienced. When he was tempted, he met the temptation in its full force without giving in. And that means it doesn't make him less aware of what it means to be tempted. It makes him more aware of what it means to be tempted. But the second thing to say about this is that statement that he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin is the reason that his sacrifice of himself as our high priest is effective to bring the pardon of our sin. If he had fallen to temptation even one time, he would have forfeited the office that he was given because he would not have been qualified for it. One reason the Levitical priesthood was not efficient was that they were sinners. And as this very author tells us, 
they were required to bring an offering for their own sin as well as for the sin of the people. They were disqualified to be effective priests because they needed a priest themselves. They needed a perfect sacrifice themselves. In the last book of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi says that the Lord will, whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, and he will purify the sons of Levi. For a long time, I struggled with that prophecy because it was obviously talking about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we see in the New Testament. And it talked about him coming to the temple, which we see both in the Synoptic Gospels and in the Gospel of John, when he comes to the temple and cleanses it. But how can the prophet say he will purify the sons of Levi when in this epistle this writer says there's a new priesthood, a priesthood of Melchizedek that Jesus Christ occupies. But it suddenly came to me, that is the point of what Malachi says. The Levitical priesthood was disallowed from efficient operation because they were corrupt sinners, as we all are. And the purification of the sons of Eli was Christ coming in a new priesthood to give a sacrifice that was efficient, where the sacrifices of the Levite, Levitical priesthood was not efficient. But this also tells us this very idea yet without sin points us to another characteristic of our high priest. He is perfectly holy and perfectly righteous as a high priest. The Christian faith is full of what seems to human reason to be paradoxes. 
God is one. But he is three. One in essence. Three in persons. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 says, Jesus Christ has been set forth as the propitiation for our sins so that God would show himself to be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus, whom he later describes as those who are sinners. And in justification, as we stand before God, we are at the same time just and sinners. In our own strength, we are sinners. But in the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we are justified and accounted as righteous as he is. Human reason has no way to understand these so-called paradoxes, but they are what we build our faith upon every day. Jesus is righteous and holy, completely righteous and holy, but that is the very reason he can be a faithful high priest in the offering of himself as the sin bearer. And that is what is implied in this passage. Jesus never sinned. But on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And why did he cry that? Because the sins of our, all his people rested upon him. As we are in justification, just and at the same time sinners, he was righteous and at the same time justly judged and found guilty of our sin, not his own. And that is what the Christian faith is built upon. That Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the gospel. And that gospel is true because Jesus is our high priest. Sin is the problem of mankind. 
May when uh, we were uh, with Charlie this afternoon talking together made the statement that a lot of uh, evangelical Christians in these days present the gospel and present the Lord Jesus Christ as the great problem solver. Do you suffer with alcoholism? Find Jesus, he will cure you. Are you addicted to drugs or other things? Come to Jesus. He will clean you up. And Jesus does give help to sinners in various ways. But the greatest thing he does is not cleaning up people's acts, but in bearing their sins in his own body. He is the sin bearer. Every problem that you face in this life will be gone once you're dead. Except sin. If it hasn't been taken care of. Sin is the only thing that clings to you after you die if it hasn't been annulled and forgiven through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what the people of the world don't want to hear. They're all right with a therapeutic Savior sometimes. But what they don't want is a legal Savior, one who bears their sins. Because guess what? In order to do that, you have to come, you have to admit that you are a sinner. You have to admit that there is nothing you can do to save yourself. You have to admit that you need the blood and the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ or you are lost. Well, what does these facts, this teaching call us? What is the call that is placed upon us? And the author tells us that Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Knowing Jesus Christ as the high priest places upon us Not the obligation, though it is an obligation, but not primarily an obligation, but primarily a privilege of those who have been united to him in faith. That we are called to draw near to this one. 
who is holy and righteous and yet knows us better than we know ourselves. He is the one who can give mercy and grace to us. We are called to draw near. Sinners don't like to be near to God. And they run away from him. They try to pretend he doesn't exist. They try to block out the gospel in many ways and uh, get rid of the idea that they have offended God by their sin. But those who have been called by His grace, those who have placed in His hands their sins for Him in His sacrifice to do away with, they want to be near of their Savior. We are called to draw near. This has meaning for our prayer life, but this is not merely a call to more frequent and earnest prayer. Though I would not preach against that. But it means drawing near in so many other ways. It means clinging fast to the Lord Jesus Christ. Even when there are no words you have in your heart to tell him anything because the pain or the grief or the sorrow is so great. But still, the Word of God comes and says, let us draw near with confidence. Because if indeed it is true and the Bible proclaims this, that our chief problem in this world is not this or that or the other thing, it's our sin, then we have someone who took care of that 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary. And we can rejoice in that and we can rejoice at it not only in happy times but in difficult times because he is always stretching out his hand to us and saying, draw near to me. Draw near to the one who loved you. And because I loved you, he says, I gave myself for you. And this is my prayer to the Father 
for you that we might be together in glory. And that's the call I leave upon you this evening. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. We receive mercy because he has compassion upon us as sinners. We find grace because that compassion is extended to us who really in and of ourselves deserve his wrath and curse. When I say tonight draw near, what does your heart say to you? Yes, Jesus, let me draw near to you. Let me give my problems, my sin, my failings, my difficulties to you. Or do you say, no, I need to go away. No one has ever been lost because of God forcing them away from Jesus Christ. Their own sinful hearts forced them away from Christ. He is the one who said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets, how often would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have any of it. And that's true of every sinner who hears the gospel and says, I reject it. I don't want it. I would rather go my own way. But for his people, for whom he died, they hear the gospel and they draw near. May that be true of every one of us at this time. Let us pray. Our gracious God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus is the great high priest who suffered on the cross that we might be forgiven of our sins, which are many, our failings, which are innumerable, and our unbelief which often raises its head. Father, teach us how to hold firm 